0: We are uh, going to be continuing on through the book of Acts. We are all the way up to chapter 21, and uh, I like to tease that we are going at a blistering pace, Uh, but we cover like 36 verses at a time, so that kind of is a blistering pace. But uh, today we're continuing on our story, and we're going to be following uh, Paul and uh, and his company as they travel into Jerusalem. So go ahead and be turning in your Bibles there. By the way, in your bulletin you should have an outline that you can kind of follow along and take notes. If you would like to, things that stick in your mind, questions that you have. Uh, by the way, I like answering questions about this stuff. So if you have a question about what we've covered, I, I love to be uh, asked questions about that. Maybe you didn't understand something, uh, or maybe I left something out, or or maybe there's uh, something just hard to understand. Whatever, I enjoy questions, and so I'm always open to being approached about those. And I'm always entertained when people are surprised to learn that I like to answer questions because my Connect group knows that. I love to answer questions, so, so bring them on, um, but we are, we're going to be in chapter 21, and as you're turning there in your Bibles, um, I kind of want to sort of introduce this idea to us of what we're going to be covering today, that uh, sometimes there are things in our lives that at the moment seem very important, seem crucial, and then later on it turns out that it really wasn't all that important, right? Maybe, maybe you... Uh, uh, there was a purchase a particular item something that you really wanted to buy and and for a while it was sort of on your mind You couldn't get it off and and, and you so you finally you bought this thing and you spent the money and you'd whatever to buy this thing And then later on you're wondering to yourself. Why did I even buy that? I don't wear it. I don't use it I don't like it. I don't whatever right. It seems so important at the time Well, that's kind of a trivial situation, but sometimes it's less trivial um, we uh, were Discussing my, my wife and I when we were still engaged, we were discussing together uh, whether how we were going to do the unity candle right and the, the whole unity candle with the big candle in the middle and the two on the side, and at some point during the service you you use the two which represent the individual you coming together and lighting the unity candle. Well, then the question came up in our discussion: what do you do with these two candles that are now burning right you 've lit the unity candle. It's going, so that symbolizes your unity, your one flesh union, and, and those things. What do you do with those two candles? Well, maybe you have an opinion about that. Maybe you really couldn't care less. Well, for some reason at 21, I had a huge opinion about that, and this was very, very important to me, and and uh, we discussed this, and we kind of went back and forth about it, and and I think we even got our parents involved a little bit, and maybe even uh, Bob Burroughs. I don't know, but it seems like a huge deal, right? And... Uh, you know, 23 years later, it's not really that huge a deal. Not a huge deal? No. But I will have you know I got my way, so. That, that's right, way to start, right? <laughs> uh, so there's, uh, there's something like that going on in our passage in chapter 21, something we read about a lot in Paul's writings that you don't read about in this passage at all there's a situation that's mentioned very briefly in one verse in the book of acts and yet when you read the letters that paul was writing at this time uh, then you see this event come up or this situation arise quite a bit. And uh, the, the books that he was writing, this were at the conclusion of his third missionary journey, and it really wasn't much of a journey per se. He kind of lived in Ephesus for three years and then did some other traveling. But at the conclusion of his missionary journey, he's, uh, he's, he has written some books. This is his third one. And he has written several books during this time, and those books are Romans and First and Second Corinthians that have been written during this time. And in those books, oddly enough, there's something that he mentions quite a bit and it's a big deal to him that he is taking up an offering because the the Judean church, the 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 church that's in Jerusalem and the area, they're very poor. And uh the So he wants to, as he's traveling around to these Roman cities and he's planting these churches that are largely Gentile, he is asking them as a means of showing solidarity and unity together. He's asking these other churches abroad to collect money so that Paul and his group can take it back to Jerusalem and present it to the Judean church as a symbol of support and unity right that the gospel comes from the jews it's only right paul says that the gentiles would bless the jews with this return gift by bringing this back to the church there in judea and he writes a lot about a couple of chapters of second of corinthians are about this this is a big deal in paul's mind and this is when in our chapter today this is when he's delivering that and it's not even mentioned he mentions it later in, in chapter 24 when he's, he's being enter, uh, yeah chapter 24 when he's being interviewed about something else and he talks about how he had traveled to bring this gift, this offering uh, to the church there, but it's not even mentioned in our passage and this would have been when he was doing it. Why is that? Why is such a huge thing not even mentioned in the book of Acts? Well, is it because the book of Acts is, is a work of fiction and the author didn't know about it and, and there are mistakes in the New Testament? Well, no. The author, Luke, actually is traveling with him during this time. You'll see that in our passage we're reading here, he uses the word we quite a bit. And he only does that at certain periods throughout the book of Acts. And that's when he himself, Luke, is traveling with Paul. And this is a we section. So he's saying, we went to this town and we got off the ship and we went over here and we went to Jerusalem and those sort of things. So he witnessed it. But I think it's because... What was such a big deal in Paul's mind, gaining this offering that he could take to show unity and solidarity between these two groups ended up, in the end, not being a big deal at all. There was something much larger going on. And so Luke, being the historian, looking back and writing about this, sees what we see at this point, which is that the gift to, to the church in Jerusalem was of secondary importance compared to Paul's own suffering he's going to be arrested he's he's going to be beaten he's going to start this ordeal where he's in 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 custody for years like at least a 5 year period he's in custody obviously that's more significant than a gift that was given and so it seems like in Paul's estimation it was a big deal at the time and then it kind of fizzled out with the way things went and Luke writes about that fizzling out and so We are coming to our passage, and kind of with that idea in mind, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will uh, take up our passage in chapter 121. Father, we come to you now, and we realize that we are short-sighted, and uh, we, the things that, that are often so important to us right now, really, in the end, are not the most significant things, very often. And that's sobering in itself. We come to Your Word and we see what really was important, what really was going on, what was significant, significant enough that Luke would write about it, included in Holy Scripture, to tell us about this time. And so we ask that You would speak to us through Your Word, that You would be the one lifted up, that You would be the one instructing us by Your Word, through the preaching of Your Word, and Your Spirit applying it to us. So we ask for Your help and Your blessing during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We pick up our story in chapter twenty one and verse one. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And if you're concerned, by the way, you can look at your map and follow this along and see what their journey is. Continuing in verse two, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, and said let the will of the lord be done and so you see this uh, travel has found its conclusion in jerusalem they have traveled from abroad they have arrived and and you see these uh, various events going on but what is significant not only is that of course they have traveled from elsewhere in the roman empire all the way to jerusalem but uh, but what is going on and what has what has been the recurring message during their travels and that's uh, first of all a message of many voices if you will keep your thumb there where you are in your in your passage and look back to chapter 20 something that we talked about last week 20 and verses 22 to 23 we read and now behold I am, this is Paul speaking to the elders there the ephesian elders and now behold I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit not knowing what will happen to me there except that the holy spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. In every city, he's hearing the same message. He's hearing it over and over again. He's hearing warnings about what's going to happen to him if he goes to Jerusalem. He doesn't know the specifics, and he's not really sure, but it's going to be bad things. It's going to involve imprisonment. it's going to involve uh, pain, suffering for himself. And so he's he's been hearing that warning everywhere he goes. And And uh, and yet he says in light of that, he's hearing uh, people tell him the message uh, coming from all all these different cities from the spirit that these things are going to wait. And yet, what does he do? He says he's constrained by the spirit to go, regardless of what's going to happen to him there. It doesn't really matter. He's going anyway. He's he's going to continue on his journey. That is what he's going to do. And so we come to our passage and we hear some protective warnings. Read verse four again and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. That's a little bit confusing. Through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And so, is Paul no longer constrained? He said in the previous chapter that he was constrained by the Spirit to continue on and go. So, have things changed? Has the Spirit changed his message? is Paul not supposed to go? Well, I've worded this protective warnings because I think what is going on is that these people are hearing from the Holy Spirit what is going to happen to him and loving him and being concerned about him. What's their response? Don't go. If I were to tell you definitively, and I, how could I know such a thing? I don't. But if I were to tell you definitively that when, when I go on this Africa trip, I'm going to suffer I'm going to catch malaria or I'm going to suffer in some other way and the Lord told me this or whatever, what would you say to me? Some of you would be like, make sure you blog about it. <laughs> it's going to be great. <clears throat> Probably Steph wouldn't say that. Right? You say, don't go. If you're going to suffer, if you know this is going to happen, don't go. And so I think, I think that's what's happening in our passage here is that the Spirit is truly speaking and truly saying these things are going to happen to Paul. And the people receiving the message, hearing that message, are saying, Well, then, Paul, don't go. If That's what's going to happen. Don't go. And so... I can't be definitive on, on the, that that's what that means, but, uh, but we certainly see that uh, he has said before, the Spirit said uh, these bad things are going to happen, and yet Paul is constrained by the Spirit to go. And more than that, we have an example of exactly what I'm saying taking place in the following verses. If you saw what happened there at the end of uh, chat, uh, verse 10... This guy Agabus, this prophet named Agabus, comes down from Judea. We've met him before, by the way. Uh, He came to us and he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so you have Agabus, who is a prophet, come and he speaks to them. He says, this is going to happen. And he acts this thing out, right? He takes Paul's belt and he ties himself up on the floor and he says, this is what the Spirit says is going to happen when the owner of this belt goes to Jerusalem. He's going to be bound up. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now, what Agabus says doesn't verbatim take place. By the end of the chapter, you'll see that, uh, in fact, the Jews didn't bind him up and the Jews didn't hand him over to the Gentiles. But the end result is the same. He ends up in the hands of the Gentiles, bound up and chained by the Gentiles through the doing of the Jews. So it seems like that's a direct fulfillment of what Agabus said here was going to happen. And so he says, if, when, when this, the owner of this belt goes to the city, this is what's going to happen to him. And then how, what's the response? What's the response from the people? Well, it's just what I suggested. When we heard, continuing in verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. That's the natural response. Agabus has acted this thing out and said the owner of this belt is going to be in trouble. He's going to be arrested, tied up by the Jews, handed over to the Gentiles. And so uh, well, the people respond and say, then don't go. We urged him not to go. But of course, Paul's response shows his resolve and and tells us kind of what it means that he is constrained by the spirit when he answers in verse 13 what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for i am ready not only to be imprisoned but even to die in jerusalem for the name of the lord jesus so he's able to convince them because he's committed to going it doesn't matter what's going to happen to me there i'm going i'm going and so We see that this explicit warning is given, and yet you see his response. He is going to do this. He is committed. Uh, He's willing not only to suffer, not only to face imprisonment, but he's willing even to die for the Lord Jesus. And so they travel, and they're going to arrive there in, in Jerusalem. We continue our chapter in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed they are all zealous for the law and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come do therefore what we tell you we have four men Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. And so you have this situation where he arrives in Jerusalem, and you see that there's a little bit of, of suspicion going on. There and you remember the story, Paul has not been in Jerusalem many times. Three times. This might be his fourth time he's been in Jerusalem since his conversion, really. And so he's not well known to the church there. And he's been working largely amongst the Gentiles. He's been traveling and he's been gone for, for decades, really, and working there. And so there's a kind of confusion. There's, there are some suspicions. Well, that kind of makes sense if you pause our story for a moment and think about what's going on historically. If you know uh, when Jerusalem fell in the first century, it was 70 A.D., and that, that was kind of the climax, that was the result of uh, these uprisings that were happening, rebellion, because the Jews in uh, Jerusalem, in Judea, no longer wanted to be under the boot of Rome. And so they were trying to throw off that reign and they were trying to be free. And so there was, there was squabbling, and there were difficulties, and there was becoming some, some xenophobia, some, some fear of outsiders, and so the Jews there were, were not liking the Romans, and vice versa. There was a lot of tension. And so that's what's going on. The time frame that we're at right now is 57 A.D., so that's, uh, that's about 13 years uh, earlier. And so you can see that it's, it's, it's in the works already, right? And who did Paul bring with him? Was Paul traveling alone, you know, a good Jewish boy traveling along? Well, no, he, he had all kinds of people with him. If you remember who his traveling companions were, look back at verse 4. Well, he started his journey. Let's go back to chapter 20 and verse 4. It's the previous previous chapter when he has started his journey that has now come to a conclusion in, in Jerusalem. And this is who was with him. Verse 4. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So he's got... He's got a, a, a group here, an entourage, and they're largely Gentile from these different regions. And that's on purpose because remember what he's doing. He's delivering this gift from the Gentile churches around, around the empire. And so he's got representatives from each of these places traveling with him. And he's going to uh, present this gift to the church there. These are his traveling companions. And so he shows up to town. Uh, where there's struggle and there's strife and there's tension between Jews and Gentiles and here he's a Jewish man coming into a to a Jewish town. He's got all these Gentile buddies with him and it would have been evident to everybody and it would have been noteworthy and it would have been a little startling to people who saw him. It would have been startling uh, for him to uh, show up to the church with that because there were not a lot of Gentile believers in Jerusalem at this time and he's got a bunch of them. They all show up together and there we we heard later on in the passage that there was some suspicion even about his teaching even in the church and not to mention in the city amongst unbelievers and so he brings these companions who are going to uh, cause a stir when he shows up with them and and he's got them that he's uh, traveling with and so what are they going to do? How is he going to demonstrate? How is he going to make peace? Because he's not there to throw a grenade in the system. He's not there to blow things up. He's trying to reconcile. He's trying to make peace, and he's trying to unify with the church there in Jerusalem. And so what's he going to do? Well, first of all, I mentioned the, the offering that's not mentioned in this passage as his effort to bring unity. But more than that, what's he going to do? Well, there's another kind of offering he can make. And so he's speaking with the leaders of the church there, and what do they recommend? First of all, they acknowledge... Paul, Christians have, Jewish Christians have heard bad things about you. They've heard that you're teaching the people to forsake the law and don't circumcise your kids and don't follow the customs of Moses and the customs of the people. And so the, even the Jewish Christians are suspicious of Paul. And if you pause for a moment and you think of Paul's theology, most of it was written while he was amongst Gentiles and much of it was written to instruct Gentiles. You can see how that would be the case. And so uh, they're 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 a little suspicious of him, not that what they believe is true, but they're a little suspicious. And so the leaders of the church say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We have these four men who are in the process of completing what would be a Nazarite vow. And the, the complete, completion of the vow would be when they would shave their heads. So they make a vow for a period of time, a minimum of 30 days. For this, uh, this is an Old Testament. Uh, this is an Old Testament instruction. For the period of 30 days, they would let their hair grow while they were completing this vow of dedication to the Lord, or perhaps seeking blessing from the Lord, or perhaps in gratitude for the blessing of the Lord. And at the end of it, they would shave their head, and that would be a symbol of the conclusion of their vow. And so the church leaders say, all right, Paul, we've got these four men and they are about to conclude this vow. They're about to conclude this, this Nazarite period. And they need to go and they need to do certain things at the temple and be recognized by the priests and whatnot and have their head shaved. And there's a, there's an offering that goes with that. There's a cost that goes with that. So Paul, why don't you go along with them and you pay the way? And you can demonstrate that you are not against the law. You can demonstrate that you're not preaching against the temple, but that you are actually in unity with the people and that you actually can follow the law also. And that will help to put their suspicions at ease. And so that's what he does. And uh, so he goes in and and he's he tells them when this completion is going to be. And he uh, he says he himself needs to be purified. He's been traveling abroad, and he's a Jew. He's been been tainted, in a sense, and so he needs to be purified in order to do things in the temple. So he just goes in, and he's going to head this whole thing up, and that's what's going to happen. And so this is an effort to bring reconciliation amongst these two groups, and Paul agrees to do it. He says, okay, and he goes into the temple, and he gives notice, and he, he does all that stuff. Why does he do that? If you've read Paul, you know that he says some very strong things about people who take the law a certain way. About the way, who, the, the way people understand the law as a means of salvation. Or uh, telling people, look, uh, Gentiles, you have to become a Jew. You have to begin to observe the law, obey the law, before you can enter into the kingdom and be a Christian. And Paul, of course, fights against that tooth and nail. He's, uh, he's ready to draw blood and spill blood over that topic because salvation is by grace through faith. It's not through the law. And so why would he do this? Well, if you will keep your finger in Acts chapter 21 and flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you'll see him dealing with this topic. How do we treat our freedom? How do we treat our liberty? Are we bound to exercise our liberty? I said that that way on purpose. Are we tied to our liberty? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which he wrote while he was on this journey. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law to those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings Paul was not bound to his liberties Some of us have have different liberties in different areas. Paul himself, who was a Pharisee in the way he was raised, a very strict adherent to the law. Yet he had come to understand very, very clearly and powerfully that salvation is not to be found through the law. Salvation is to be found in Christ alone. And so when he's talking about how one is converted, when he's talking about how one can have peace with God, when he's talking about how one enters the kingdom or becomes a Christian, he will fight you tooth and nail if you throw the law in there. If you, if you want to follow certain steps like those uh, that he's writing against in the book of Galatians, he will fight tooth and nail because it is, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And yet what do we do with the law? Well, the law is a revelation of God's character and nature. It's a revelation of what it looks like to obey God. And so Paul very well Uh, could display continuing to follow the law. Now, there's a moral aspect of the law. Do not lie. Do not steal. Those are aspects of the law. And, of course, those apply to us. But even a situation like this, even a Nazarite vow, which was according to the law and that we don't have to follow now, yet that's something that he could could participate in as a means of pointing people to God. And so he's even willing to do that. And though he himself uh, might not have... Uh, Chosen to behave in this way yet for the sake of unity with brothers with other Christians who were in doubt and who were suspicious of him he's willing to set aside his liberties for a moment to to seek unity with them not that he was changing the gospel nothing here is affected in, in the gospel but he was willing to participate even in this in this fulfillment of the law so he undergoes this purification himself and he pays for uh, those people to go through and complete their uh, their own vow that they had completed. And in, in doing so, he had to sort of like make an arrangement at the temple. He had to go in and say on, you know, probably Friday afternoon or whatever, uh, there's, we're going to fulfill this vow. These guys are going to come in. There's going to be a ceremony. So he had to like alert the temple, which means alerting the temple, right? So that means that the non the non-Christian Jews who hate Paul, know where he's going to be and when he's going to be there. And so it kind of opens Paul up for an ambush. And that's what we read as we continue on in our passage, starting in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And so you see what the response is when he's at the temple. He's vulnerable. He's exposed. This is the place of the unbelieving Jews. And so they jump him. And they start screaming, they start making accusations, and it's very interesting the kind of accusations that they make there. Look, look what they are in 28a. Men of Israel help. First of all, like, there are tons of these people around shouting help because here's this one guy. <laughs> right? So, but it's, 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 it's to evoke an emotional response. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Right? Anytime someone says everyone everywhere, th- there are very few statements you can make about everyone everywhere, right? And so, usually when someone pulls that one out, they're trying to evoke an emotional response. They're not really interested in the facts necessarily. They're trying to get an emotional response, and that's what these people are doing. This is the guy, help, help. You know, this is the guy who's been teaching everyone everywhere uh, against the people. That's ah, not enough against the law and against this plate. Like everything that would, that would evoke an emotional response from the Jews they're saying Paul has attacked that thing. He's saying bad things about that thing. That thing that you care about Jews and so they are uh, stirring up what's going on there. They're stirring up a crowd and, and, uh, and by the way remember what's going on. You've got the struggle between Jew and Gentile in Jerusalem and where is this all being said? In Jerusalem and saying, hey, Paul is is like one of those Gentiles. He's kind of acting like one of those Gentiles. And here he is a Jew, right? They're playing on that emotional sentiment. They're playing on that anger and that frustration that people already have to to whip up a crowd. And of course, it's exactly what happens, right? So you see that they're misrepresenting his teachings. Yeah, Paul speaks about uh, the temple, or he speaks about the law, and he speaks about the people of God, and he teaches things, and he's not teaching against them. He's helping people understand what is true. And he is trying to preach to all people everywhere, by the way. He's trying to. He just hadn't made it yet. But he's trying to teach people truly how to understand the law and who the, who the Jews really are and what God is doing with the people of God. He's been trying to get people to understand that. But these people who are whipping up the crowd, they really couldn't care about the truth of the matter. They just want a mob. They want someone who is uh, desirous to uh, to take Paul away and is able to do so. And so they misrepresent his teaching. And they also bring false accusations against him. They, he, he also brought this Greek into the temple. And it, where's the Greek? Well, they had seen him the other day with Paul around town, this guy Trophimus. And they assumed, they, they, they presumed, they thought, well, he's probably with him now. And I think this is Luke kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Hey, we saw him with this other person days ago. He must be with him now, and so they're whipping up, uh, even using false accusations to try and uh, to try and whip up the crowd against Paul. And of course, that works, and the crowd jumps him. and And uh, we we read that they you know they had to stop beating him. That tells you they had started at some point. And so he's being beaten by the crowd. They drag him out of the temple, and I think it's very symbolic. The gates were closed. That's done. The Paul's gate, Paul's Paul's inroad he's been shut out of the temple. He's been shut out of Judaism. He no longer should expect any kind of reception with them. I think it's a kind of a symbolic picture that Luke uses here. But but what, what happens? So he's being beat up. He's been dragged out of the temple. The gate is shut behind him, right? And there's this giant uproar going on. Well, of course, the, uh, the, the tribune of the cohort, here's the, the guy who's kind of in charge, the, the soldier's in charge of this. He hears what's going on. All of Jerusalem's in an uproar. So he sends his soldiers down and he runs down there himself, right? And that's when they have to stop beating because, you know, the soldiers, soldiers show up. And so we actually have a situation where the Romans come to the rescue, right? When we think about the book of Acts, we tend to think, well, there are two main, you know, groups of bad guys, Right, The Jews who, who, who reject the gospel. There are many Jews who accept the gospel and are part of the church. And Paul travels with them and he loves them and he writes to them and, and spends time with them. And, and then there are, there are those Jews who reject the gospel and turn away. And, uh, and they cause a lot of problems for Paul. And then we tend to think the Romans are another source of problem. But if you read through the book of Acts, you see the church has a relatively good relationship with, with Roman authority throughout you see that the church is not breaking Roman laws. And you see that the problems stirred up are usually stirred up by other people. Usually it's the it's the, it's the unbelieving Jews who stir it up or you've got Demetrius in, in Ephesus who stirs that up or someone else. But it's not because the church was breaking Roman law. not It's not because the Romans themselves come against him. So we actually see kind of a recurring message in our book here that the church is not against Rome and Rome, at least at this point, The way Luke presents it is not against the church. And so it's pretty interesting that you have a rescue from the Jews of a Jewish man by these soldiers who come down. And yet he's rescued, and we sang about it earlier, he will deliver me, and yet what does that deliverance look like? We're not promised what it's going to look like. Paul had some promises about what it was going to look like. It was going to involve imprisonment, and it was going to involve suffering. And so that's what God's deliverance for him was going to look like. And this, we see that he suffers. We see that Christians throughout the book of Acts suffer. And that kind of brings us to our takeaways today. Because Christians today suffer. Not only Christians. Everybody suffers. Maybe we're particularly aware of Christian suffering because we're Christians. Or perhaps there's a greater degree of suffering amongst Christians. I'm not really prepared to comment on that. But everybody suffers. And Christians suffer. Why? If we sang, "God will deliver me," why do Christians suffer? Well, I think first of all, I've got several several reasons here that that come straight from Scripture, and and one of them is, of course, about the gospel. Lord, our, what did our Lord do? He suffered. And his suffering is a is a, an integral part of our own redemption. Without his suffering, without his death on the cross, we would not have forgiveness of sins. And so, our Lord, the one we follow, the one who is our king, he suffered. And it was not just an accident, it was not just a one-time thing, or it was not just in passing or unimportant. It was a large focus of his life and ministry, was his suffering. And so, why would we be any different, we who follow him? And so, we thank God for his suffering... Because by it we have our sins paid for. So, how do we think about our own suffering? Paul here is going to suffer, and you can see that his suffering is is on purpose also, and it's for the advancement of the gospel. What's going to happen is that he is in Jerusalem, he's being arrested, and he's going to be taken to Rome. Where better to go to proclaim the good news of salvation in, in Christ? than the, the the center of the world. And that's where he's going. And he's not even having to pay his own way. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna take him, right? And so his suffering leads to that. It's gonna give him an, an incredible platform. And so our Lord suffered. We will suffer. There's another there's another connection with that. And I just want to mention this in passing. Maybe you just write this down Ecclesiastes seven and verse two. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. That's a radical statement. Why? The writer continues For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because this is the end of all mankind. We're all going to end up suffering. We're all going to end up in that place. And so when we're faced with that situation, we begin to think the thoughts that really matter about eternity, about life and about death. So often in life, so often, we make it our goal not to have to live in the area of those thoughts. We would rather think trivial thoughts we would rather debate trivial things we'd rather discuss them and dwell upon and laugh about it. trivial things but going to the house of mourning suffering brings to our attention the questions that really need answering and so the bible's take on this is yes there's a time for laughter yes there's a time for joy and we have joy with each other but we need to maintain we need to maintain those thoughts that are brought about when we face suffering Where will I go when I die? How can I know God? How can I be at peace with Him? We need to retain those thoughts. We need to, in a sense, live in those thoughts. And the suffering Christian is doing exactly that. So it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. There's another reason. Since Jesus suffered at the hands of the world, we can expect the same. Jesus said in John 15:20, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But there's more to it than that. It's not just that we're united with him and we have these blessings and, oh, it comes with a cost. There's a lot more to it than that. When we suffer as Christians, we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. We share in his sufferings. Listen to this from 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We actually get to share in His sufferings. And that's not really something we volunteered for. When someone shared the gospel with us, we weren't thinking, I really want to enter into this aspect but Peter here is saying it is actually a part of the glory of being in Christ is you get to suffer with him. Well, how can that be? Well, we read in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29 that it's actually a gift from God that we suffer. Listen to what he says there. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's a gift from God to you. We talked in our Sunday school class about how humbling it is how it makes us realize the how short our arm is how strong we are not how much we cannot accomplish when we suffer it's a gift from him isn't it a good thing to be made aware of the truth of how frail and weak we are before god rather than to continue living and thinking that we are strong we have paul's own story that he writes about in second corinthians chapter 12 his own thorn in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Remember, he had that thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what it is, but it, it bugged him enough. It weighed him down enough. It was heavy enough for him that he would make three huge prayer attempts to God to try and get it taken away. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, be, uh, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak. Then I am strong. Suffering reveals to us the truth of our own frailty. Reveals to us also that God loves to show his strength to a person who realizes their weakness. Suffering in Christ is not without purpose. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Finally, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering in Christ is not without purpose. God brings it into the life of the believer, and he uses it to produce endurance and increased capacity to look to God for strength to get through that suffering. And we need to be trained that way. We all need strength from God to get through life, and yet it's revealed in suffering. And as we continue to endure, God makes changes. He makes improvements in our character. He actually grows us as a result of this how can we keep from being changed as our eyes are continually being trained and fixed on him more and more rather than upon ourselves and what we can accomplish as we see the character changes god is working in us our hope increases and that hope grows and increases and doesn't put us to shame because we are seeing more and more evidence that god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us james montgomery boys put it this way Christians rejoice in suffering because of what they know about it. God uses our troubles, trials, and tribulations to form Christian character. It keeps our eyes fixed on Him. And so I I don't know the suffering of, of all of you. I know the suffering of some of you. And I don't know exactly what purpose God has for it in your life, or maybe in the life of those around you. But He has a purpose. He has a purpose and he is accomplishing that purpose and he will use this suffering to fix your eyes upon him. The suffering I'm aware of by those in this room is is great. I don't deny that. It's heavy and it's hard to think about And you would be so tempted just to take your mind elsewhere and think about lesser things. But before you do that, ponder these truths that only in Christ do you have strength to carry those things on. He works in us and his power is perfected in us. The weaker we are. So Paul said, I will rejoice and I will boast in my weaknesses. Because that is God and his opportunity to work. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I spend the majority of my time thinking about you rejoicing in uh, the great things that you have done and accomplished on my behalf and I also confess that I, I often don't. I'm not sure I have ever included my own suffering in that list of great things that you are accomplishing and doing on my behalf and yet that is the case. And so we take this this time, as a church, a church of people who have suffered and are suffering and will suffer again, we take this opportunity to give you thanks for your work in showing yourself strong in our weakness. Not in spite of our weakness, but using our weakness and suffering as an opportunity to show yourself strong. So we do pray that you would be glorified in our midst. We do pray that uh, you would show yourself strong on our behalf. We do pray that you would draw our eyes to you frequently. And that as we look to you and we look to what you've accomplished and we look to this salvation we have in Christ, we look to the fact that our Lord, our King suffered and we are so grateful for that suffering that we will be changed in our own hearts. That we will see that uh, you do deliver us. Though it's not always on the path or by the means or the way that we would prefer and yet you are god and we can trust you and so we do and we rejoice in hope of the glory of god Father, I do pray for your blessing on each one here and those who are suffering, bless them. And we do pray that their suffering would be taken away, but we pray that you would work mightily in the meantime. Pray that you would show yourself strong on their behalf, that you would even use their suffering to to put on display your grace and your glory to people around them, to draw others to you, just like you used Paul, just like you used Christ. And so we thank you, Father, and we trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God bless you all. If you want to come up and pray, perhaps about a situation of suffering, there will be a family up here to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you, and you are dismissed.